listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. Since 2001, Will Ford has been teaching on revival, reconciliation, and societal transformation. He has served as chair of Marketplace Leadership at Christ for the Nations Institute in Dallas, Texas. He is also the founder of Hilkiah Ministries. Matt Lockett is a teacher and speaker who is passionate about prayer and fasting, community, and government. And since 2005, he has served as a missionary in Washington, D.C., and is the executive director for the Justice House of Prayer located on Capitol Hill. How many of you know that we need missionaries in Washington, D.C.? Amen. That's probably the greatest mission field. Together, they are co-founders of Dreamstream Company and co-authors of the book that you cannot buy today. The Dream King, but we're going to get it here for you. I want you to put your hands together and welcome Will Ford and Matt Lockett. Thank you, Pastor. Can we give it up for your pastor, Pastor Rocky? I'll tell you what. Maybe go lots of places and we just, just the grace that's on his life as, as, as a leader is amazing, so. And pull this back for you. Yeah. So I'm Will Ford of the Will Ford Matt Lockett team. <laughs> and uh, we come with props. So if you don't mind, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, John 17. John 17. I love John 17 because uh, <laughs> it's Jesus praying for us. You ever overheard somebody praying for you? I was telling the first service about this, overhearing my mother pray for me. I remember when I was in my backslidden knucklehead days. <laughs> And I was in my 20s, during my college years. I, during the summer break, I decided to go out and hang out with my, you know, college buddies in town, some of my high school buddies, hanging out at the club. So I thought I was going to sneak into my mother's house, three in the morning, a little tipsy. Because I didn't want to know what I'm doing back, you know, <laughs> back at school. So <laughs> I'm tipping into the house three in the morning, trying to ease the door to come in. But who's already up at three in the morning praying for me? My mama, I mean, she's just going to town. Devil, I bind you in the name of Jesus. Je Delilah, I see you. Jezebel, I bind your hand. I plead the blood, the blood, the blood. <laughs> she's going to, going to town. I heard an old preacher say it like this. He said, the only difference between a praying mama and a pit bull is lipstick. Because a praying mama don't let go, right? I'm like, no wonder I didn't get any phone numbers tonight. Mama's blocking everything, you know? <laughs> Never forget that. You're talking about a buzzkill. That was a buzzkill. I sat on the outside of that door, listened to my mother praying for me the whole time, about an hour. About a year later or so, and I, like, for real, for real, gave my life to Jesus. And I told my mother, I said, Mama, yeah, you had no idea. But there was one night I snuck in. I was a little drunk, but I heard you praying for me, and it branded me. I couldn't shake that moment. I just want to thank you. I said, you know, I was on the other side of that door, but thank you for praying for me. She said, oh, I knew you were there. I knew you were there the whole time. I just wanted you to know what God had placed in my heart concerning his plan, his purpose, his destiny for your life, and how I was contending for it. Church, I will submit to you that John 17 is our buzzkill. We get to overhear Jesus praying for us. Here's what he's praying. John 17, critical moment in his life. He's praying. John 17, starting in verse 18, 
It says like this, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, I'm talking about the 12 disciples, but for them also who believe in me through their word. Turn to your neighbor and say, now he's praying for you. What is he praying? That they may all be one. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou sent me. And the glory which thou hast given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfect in being one. Some translations say unity. Honestly, in the Greek, it says one over and over and over again. Why? That the world may know that thou didst sent me and has loved them even as thou hast loved me. Isn't that profound? You know, we're living in this time right now where, yeah, you know, with the pandemic and everything else that's been going on, social distancing has revealed the social distance in our hearts. But I'm daring to believe that God's going to use United Church to heal a divided nation. And God is going to answer his son's prayer through us. The beautiful thing is that Jesus has answered so many prayers for us. This is our opportunity to answer one of his. Isn't that beautiful? You think about it like that. What you're going to hear today is a story of how God is doing that right now through this amazing friendship and brotherhood between myself and my good friend, Matt Lockett. And uh, it's not just our story. It's your story, too. It's what he's doing right now in the body of Christ. Can I pray for you? Jesus, we love you. We overheard you praying for us, and it's, it's branded us, it's marked us. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to give us the grace to respond to your voice in this hour. And we ask you, Lord, use the United Church to heal a divided nation. Release the spirit of wisdom and revelation as we minister here today. Convict, reveal, and God bring people into the kingdom of the day. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen and amen. So some of y'all probably wondering what this uh, old kettle pot is doing up here. It's actually been passed down for many generations in my family. And it's actually connected to this amazing speech. I have a dream speech. I just want to play a little portion of that speech. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners Will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream. Powerful, powerful speech, right? Did you know that little phrase, I have a dream? Did you know that was birthed out of a prayer meeting? Yeah, Dr. King was in a prayer meeting with a little girl named Prathia Hall, 22 years old. How do you like to have a name named after prayer? Her name was Prathia. Dad was a Baptist preacher. She became an amazing preacher in her own right with the Princeton Theological Seminary. But when she was 22 years old, she's in a church that had been burned down by the Ku Klux Klan. While she's there praying in that church, Dr. King was there too. She starts praying, I have a dream. And she starts naming off her own list. Dr. King said to her later on after the prayer meeting, he said, young lady, that 
little phrase you used was powerful. You mind if I borrow that? So yes, sir, by all means. <laughs> Dr. King that, he, he, he incorporated that phrase into his prayer life for over a year in his prayer meetings. And then one day he's preaching in Detroit, and they were working out his speech that he was going to do later on in, in, at the Mall in Washington a month later. And so he gets through with his speech, and then he kicks into his own I have a dream phrase and puts in his own list of things that he was dreaming about. His friend Mahalia Jackson was there. I mean, y'all are familiar with her, famous gospel singer. But uh, his speechwriters who were there with him that night, they said, like, you know, Doc, just stick with our talking points. That I have a dream stuff is too cliche. Let's leave that out of the speech in Washington. So reluctantly, he actually agreed. But in Washington, he's reading the speech verbatim, but then he gets to, this, to the end of his speech, and all of a sudden, if you get the right version of the I have a dream speech from some of the recordings, you can hear a person in the background saying, Martin, tell him about the dream. It's Mahalia Jackson. And that's when he kicks into I have a dream, and the rest is history. All because he overheard somebody else in a prayer meeting. Question, what kind of impact is your prayer life having on somebody else? I'm not saying you need to be walking, you know, in the prayer meetings with one eye open, looking around to see who's listening to you. <laughs> what I'm saying is the next generation or other people around you need to be impacted by your prayer life today. And that's why I love that speech so much because I'm one of those sons of former slaves. And this kettle pot actually came from the slaves in my family. They were Christians. And they used this kettle pot. Yeah, for cooking, they use it for washing clothes, but it was passed down to my family because secretly they used it to muffle their prayers in their prayer meetings for freedom. Now, honestly, I hadn't thought much about the pot until I went to a little conference. Colorado Springs, Colorado, where this man, Dutch Sheets, was talking about this amazing concept in prayer called synergy. Synergy is when you take, like, two separate things, you connect them together, and they'll create an addition of power, a multiplicity of power, right? Scientists say if you take two horses and pull them together, Put them together. If they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. And that's in the natural. God has set up something in the natural so that we, when we work together, it creates exponential results. Not additional, but exponential. But spiritually, check it out. One could put a thousand of light and two could put what? Ten thousand of light. That's synergy. So think about it. We start getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and white. We start getting agreement in prayer between old and young, male and female. We can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before, right? Well, then Dutch said something else that was so profound. He said this. Not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, but you also get, can agree in prayer with the generation behind you. He's talking about how it is at his alma mater. Christ for the Nations Institute, and he's leading the student body there in prayer. And while he's praying, here's the Holy Spirit say to him, Dutch, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the founder of this school. And he said, okay, God, is this really you? Because that man's dead. He's been dead for more than 30 years, and I know you're not there talking to the dead. And the Holy Spirit said to him, but his prayers aren't dead. They're still alive before my throne. There are things I promised this man in prayer they don't want to release into this school right now, but I can't do it yet because I need this generation to come in agreement with that generation. I'm looking for a generation from today to take the baton of prayer from the past. I'm looking for the synergy of the ages coming together. What I began to understand was God ordains our steps and he gives us unfinished business. 
The ordaining on our steps comes from Ephesians 2 and 10, where it says that we're God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, and we're walking out the works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. The word workmanship is a powerful word. It's the word poema. Everybody say poema. So you think about it. You're God's poem. You're his song. And the word poema was actually the word that was used to describe someone who was a skillful tailor, a fabric maker. In other words, God has a tailor-made plan, tailor-made destiny for all of our lives, and he's weaving all of us into it. It's based upon the, it's, it's, it's birth through the family we're born into, spiritually and naturally. He's weaving something together. You ever see, see somebody weaving something together, can't figure out what they're working on? Like my sister, she used to do needlepoint and, and crochet and and there was sometimes she'd be sewing something together, weaving something together, and I couldn't figure out what she was putting together. All I saw was knots and tatters and everything else. So what are you doing? She would turn it around so I could see what she was working on. Listen, that's what God is doing with this little story I'm about to tell you. <laughs> he's turning the tapestry around so we can see what he's been working on for quite some time. Amen? So that's one understanding of it. And I don't think that's a mis- it's a mistake that this pot comes from Lake Providence, Louisiana. <laughs> Providence is the continuous activity of God by which we by which he preserves and governs. It's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things and apparent accidents. In other words, you have no idea how many things God prevented from happening for you to, to get here, right? You have no idea how many things you just accidentally stumbled upon. You just happened to meet this person. You just happened to stumble on that person. You got that job. You got that promotion or whatever. No, the God of providence was watching over it all. And he's weaving things into your life, connecting you to unfinished business from other people, even in your own family, even spiritual family around the country. God is weaving something together. It looks like a bunch of knots and tatters right now. It looks like a mess. But let me tell you something. God's about to turn the tapestry around so we can see what he's been working on. He works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That includes families, that includes communities, that includes nations. But then the other aspect of that is this. That unfinished business is also connected to Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. All those who have gone before it says this. All these by faith, talking about the great who's of faith. They were approved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect without us. In other words, there's this whole company of people, y'all, looking over the balcony of heaven saying, hey, y'all, don't mess this thing up because God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you. Jesus said it best when he said, what? Greater works than these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. And he'll start something in one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations. In the place of prayer. When I got that understanding from Dutch, and he began to unpack that, I remember my own unfinished business in prayer because I remember this kettle pot for the first time. Like I said, it was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, they used it for prayer. They were owned by a slave master in Lake Providence who would beat them for any reason. Praying was one of them. See, back then... They wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. But it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. It was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. And the irony of the peculiar institution that slavery was at that time period is that they wanted their slaves to be Christians, but they didn't want them to pray because they felt like if they prayed or were foster hope, if they got hopeful, they felt like they would try to run away. So literally on that plantation, they would be beaten if they were caught praying. 
An example of that is this great uncle of ours. The story is passed down. He was literally strapped to a tree and beat to death simply for going fishing without asking. They thought they'd make an example out of him. So that's how cruel slavery was there in that plantation. And if they were caught praying, they would be beaten as well. But listen, the folks who passed down this part in my family, they were Christians. They loved Jesus, and they decided to pray Anyway, so what they would do is they would sneak into a barn late at night to make sure their prayer wasn't seen on the plantation. And as I remember my grandmother telling the story, she said that they would sneak into the barn with this cast iron pot, put it in the middle of the cabin, and then take it and turn it upside down on the cabin floor. Then prop it up where rocks would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would then prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle popped up for their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story that they passed down with the pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time, so they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. One day, freedom comes, and this young teenage girl, we don't know her name to this day, but she decided to keep this pot and that story in our family. Why? Because she overheard a prayer meeting. And she knew that she wasn't the only recipient of these folks' sacrifice in the place of prayer. So she keeps this pot and this story in our family. And she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed it on to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to William Ford Sr., who then passed it on to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. I'm sorry, I've, I've shared this story about three times this weekend. I can only do it so long before I just, I'm on a puddle of tears sometimes. Oh, it's such a privilege to be the subject of somebody else's prayers. You have no idea. Your prayers can reach through history and snatch a generation out of the clutches of shame, bondage, and everything else. Ask Mephibosheth. Ask others that you be, who know they've been prayed out of something and now into God's glorious light. Somebody is going to get snatched today too because somebody's been praying for you. I'm telling you, somebody pray. This is a praying house. It was the prayers of that godly remnant of the people back then that prayed into being some of the most powerful revivals, not just black Christian slaves. I found that this story was replicated all over the country. It wasn't just in my family. As I combed through slave narratives, I found 200 times where other slaves prayed underneath kettle pots for freedom in secret prayer meetings all throughout the South. And there were white Christian abolitionists who risked their lives to preach the gospel. Some of them were shot, killed, and lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God and just wink at slavery. God hadn't forgotten about those folks' prayers. But listen, y'all, if we want to see what they saw, we got to do what they did. We feast and play. They fasted and prayed. Yeah. Not trying to guilt anybody into the prayer meeting, but listen, those folks back during that time period... They had a slave master that kept them from praying. We have a willing master that keeps us from praying. You know what it's called? It's called Netflix and chill. It's called social media. <laughs> Listen, but I'm daring to believe that God's going to use Destiny Community Church to lift the raise up a banner of intercession in this place that would shift Florida, that would shift Gainesville, that would shift this whole region. 
So I shared that with my friend Dutch Sheets, and he said, you know, well, we need to take this pot around the country and do some prayer meetings and use this pot as an object lesson for prayer. Because Revelation 5 and 8 said they're golden bowls full of incense. Which are the prayers of the saints. Listen, every time you pray, it's collected in a golden bowl. Not a wooden bowl, but a golden bowl. You know why? Because that's how precious the prayers are to God. Listen, there's a prayer bowl over Destiny Community. There's a prayer bowl over Gainesville. There's a prayer bowl over Florida. God's looking for a new generation to resource the prayer bowls once again. He said, God, you want me to have some cast iron cooking pot represent the prayer bowls in heaven? He said, it's Bible fell open to Zechariah 14 and 20. Part B of that verse says this, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord. So it'd be like the bowls before the altar. So here's this cooking pot that's called muffled prayers, the same way as a bowl in heaven that catches our prayers like incense. Then Dutch said this to me. He said, William, wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony to use the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again? I'm glad he said generation because it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying back then. Like I said, there were white Christian abolitionists and white revivalists who knew that if any person was a slave, was a Christian, they knew that person was their brother. They were connected. They were family because of the blood of Jesus. Many of those men had their houses burned. They were shot. They were killed. They were lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wink at slavery. They helped me understand something, too. So they knew they were fighting for family. Because they knew they shared the same inheritance. We do too. In other words, if my ancestors had been Muslims or Buddhists, I'd honestly, I wouldn't have any connection to this part of his history. Why? Because I'm a Christian. But because these folks were Christians, not only are these my ancestors and forefathers, if you're a believer, this is your family inheritance too. In other words, I'm just as much a spiritual son of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Charles Wesley and Charles, Charles Finney, John Wesley and Charles Finney, as you are Martin Luther King and William Seymour and Harriet Tubman, listen, y'all, we come together, that kind of unity agreement, something powerful happens. Oil begins to flow. Yokes get broken over generations. God's looking for a new generation to come together and believe. Because there was a Supreme Court law back then. Think about it. Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott was said that slaves had no rights in the courtroom. And because... God sent revival. That law got broken so radically in the hearts of people, other folks began to fight for other people that didn't look like them. So I'm listening. I'm daring to believe the same God who broke the power of Jared Scott. Listen, y'all, he can break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can put an end to systemic poverty. He can stop our schools from being a pipeline to prison. He can shut down mass incarceration. He can put an end to the crack houses in the inner city and shut down the opiate crisis in the suburbs. He's just looking for a new generation of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe. The Lord spoke to me and said, William, the litmus test for authentic revival in their day was the ending of slavery. The litmus test for authentic revival in your day will be the ending of abortion. God wants to bring a revival that will so radically transform the hearts of people in this nation. Abortion clinics will become museums of what we used to do. It's more connected to the race issue than you realize. Listen, the deal is this. When the people that we cannot see, talking about the child in the womb, can become optional, it's inevitable that other people that we can see can also be dehumanized and marginalized even to the place of elimination like we saw with George Floyd. In other words, the same God weeps over all the shedding of innocent blood. 
The same God who wept over the five police officers and the nine police officers that were killed in all the riots is the same God who wept over Philando Castile and George Floyd, and he weeps over 62 million babies that have been aborted in this nation. He weeps over all the shedding of innocent blood. So the Lord said to me, wait, if you want to be part of this, you got to deal with your own baggage. You got to deal with your own unforgiveness issues. And he addressed that through this powerful dream that he gave me about the dreamer, Martin Luther King. In this dream, I'm on my way to Dr. King's old church. But before I could get there, I had to go pick up Dr. King. <laughs> so I'm with my friend Lou Wing on the dream. And we go by this house to pick up Martin Luther King. Of course, it's a dream, so he's alive. But in the dream, Dr. King had this humongous white duffel bag with black handles on it. In the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. He throws the bag down violently, and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, that bag will make a nice souvenir. Which shows you, you know, I'm carnal even in my dreams. I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College, you went to Morehouse College, the bag will make a nice souvenir. So in the dream, I get out of this vehicle to go pick up the baggage. But before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders, and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the racial divide in our nation. Y'all, I woke up from the dream in tears. I didn't even realize that I was weeping in intercession the whole night. My pillow was soaked with tears. I shared the dream. My friend Lou Engle, he begins to weep. We begin to pray, God, what is the interpretation for this dream? God, remind me. What did Dr. King say to me? The Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black candles. That would be the interpretation for your dream. Then I realized the black candles represented my ethnicity, African-American. The white baggage represented my unforgiveness issues. The Lord was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. Knew what God was putting his finger on in my life because I know what it's like at 13 years old to come out of a convenience store and have me and two or three other friends. We were walking along and all of a sudden a carload full of white guys pulled up to us, started shouting the N-word at us. They said they were going to shoot and kill us. They chased us for almost two hours. Probably were just joyriding. We didn't know him, but listen, we were terrified. I know what it's like later on in my 30s to get my first nice house in the suburbs. And every week for the first three months, I had the same police officer who would pull me over just for driving while black. I know what that feels like. But you know what I had done? For every white person and police officer in that region, I put those stories on everybody. I saw everyone through the veil of those experiences. That's a devil's diabolical plot, isn't it? Revelation 12, where it says the devil is the accuser of the brethren. Y'all, that word accuser is the Greek word kategoros. Is where we get the word category. In other words, the diabolical plot of the enemy is to get us to categorize or stereotype each other. So before we have one conversation with each other, we put some bad storyline, some bad stigma on people, some bad stereotype. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of your white baggage so you can get into a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. And I think the question God has for the church right now is this. What color is your baggage? Is it red, yellow, black, white, or brown? Or is it blue? Or red? <laughs> Listen, from everything that we saw from 410 cities being set on fire by the extreme left a couple of summers ago to what we saw on January 6th from the stream, right? Listen, left wing, right wing, the whole bird is sick. We need the dove back in America. <laughs> Y'all, it's not about the donkey or the elephant right now. It's about the lamb. 
and only a united church can kill a divided nation. Amen. So, a friend Lou Engle decided, hey, we're going to do this prayer meeting at the Lincoln Memorial. MLK Celebration Day. Won't you come? Bring this pot. Share your story. It'd be January 17, 2005. But little did I know that Mr. Poema was going to connect me to more unfinished business. I want to bring up my good friend, Matt Lockett. Matt, please come. Share. Good morning, Destiny Community Church. Honored to be here today. I feel a little pressure because if I'm not mistaken, Pastor did offer a full refund on your tithe after service today. So I do feel a little bit of pressure, but I get on an airplane and leave this afternoon. <laughs> well, it is an honor to be with you here this morning. I do want to greet everyone who's watching on the web stream. We're just so thankful to be able to be here in Gainesville with you in this Gainesville area. And we, uh, we were here for a, uh, the CIRA Pregnancy Resource Center Banquet on Thursday night. That was a huge blessing to be able to share our story with that community. And we were at Greenhouse Church yesterday, and now we're here with you today. And what an incredible time it's been. It has been a very moving weekend. It's hard, just to be honest. And, and Will was being very sincere when he said that earlier, that we can come in and tell our story, and we kind of can control our emotions a little bit, just a little bit. But the story is, is very raw for us. We, we've done the story many, many times. We've shared the story many times, but it, it's, it touches us at such a deep level. Our hope and prayer is just that we're able to communicate it to you this morning in a way that touches you as well. So what I would like to do is start right where Will left off. It was January 17th, 2005, and I'm going to share with you now about how Mr. Poema wove my story in with Will's story. And I really do believe that that picture Will gave us earlier, that, that where we're at today and where I believe the nation is at today is that there's this tapestry that's being woven. And if you turn on the TV or get on the internet, I don't know if you guys know this, but there's some really crazy stuff on the internet. It's true. <laughs> But what we're being confronted with right now is we're looking at the backside of the tapestry where everything looks like it's a mess. Everything is knotted and tear, you know, it's all just messed up. And we, it's really hard to tell what's, being go, what's been going on. But I believe God is about to do something really extraordinary in this nation. I'm in faith for this, that he's turning the picture around and we have an opportunity to see his handiwork. So... Let me back up in the story a little bit. I'm actually going to go back exactly one year to the day, January 17th, same day, 2004. And on that day, something really tragic happened in my life when I lost my dad. He passed away unexpectedly. And if you've lived through something like that, and I see a, a good mix of ages in this room. Some of you have lived through it. Some of you haven't. If you've lived through it, you know that can really shake you. It can really turn your world upside down. If you're young and you haven't lived through it yet, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but you're going to go through this at some point. And uh, if you think about it for a second, you spend your whole life receiving from mom and dad, right? They put a roof over your head. They provide you. Maybe it's your grandparents, whatever the situation is in your family. But you receive from them good things, bad things too, good, the bad, and the ugly. But where you've been receiving your whole life, suddenly when you lose them, 
something really powerful happens in that moment. We don't really think about it this way, but where you've been told the story your whole life, now suddenly the mantle of storytelling passes to you. And now you become the steward of the storyline. And maybe you don't think about it that way, but now in that moment, you have to make sense of the story. You have to try to figure out, like, what, how did I get here? Now, this is the opportunity for Christians. See, I'm a believer. It means I believe something. I believe that my life has meaning. I also believe that your life has meaning because I know that there are no accidents in the heart of God. No one is an accident. Now, I don't care what your daddy told you. <laughs> You were not an accident. And, and so God didn't get a cold one day and he, he, got, he sneezed you out into the timeline and you're here and, you know, now what are we going to do? No, God actually had a plan. See, I, when I first uh, went to college, I was involved with some, you know, Christian uh, campus ministry and evangelism where they give you those tracks and they train you how to go out and share your faith and it's like the four spiritual laws or whatever it is. I don't remember now, but, you know, the kind of the, the, the hook of it is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you know, and you, you share that over and over and over. And we've, as the church, I think we've almost said those words so much uh, without much faith behind it that it's lost a little bit of its meaning. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But what I've learned is, no, he actually does love you and he really does have a plan. So a little bit of the plan in my life, after I lost dad, I started asking these really Big questions that needed really big answers. Now, I've been a Christian since I was 15, first one in my family to get saved, but suddenly now I'm in my 30s and I'm asking questions like, God, who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose that you have for my life? And, and I, you know, I got to be really honest with you, that's not just like a nice cutesy little prayer that we should be teaching in Sunday school to the children. God actually doesn't care if you're 16 or 60. He wants you to ask those big questions. Why? Because he wants to give you the really big answers. I don't care if you're the oldest person in the room here this morning. Your heavenly father wants you to hear from him who he says you are and what his plan is for your life. So here I am and I'm a, I'm, I'm a grown man and I'm asking, you know, God, who am I? Why am I here? And so one of the things that became very important to me, and I didn't understand at the time why, but it became a very important to me during that season that I wanted to know where my family came from. I wanted to know, is there anything in the Lockett family tree that I need to know about? Because again, I'm a believer. I, I'm looking for meaning. And now that was a very difficult task in my family because my dad, believe it or not, he's one of 16 siblings. That usually gets a, oh, yeah, come on, mammal. <laughs> My dad was one of 16 siblings that grew up on a tobacco farm in Kentucky. But in my dad's family, they couldn't get beyond his grandfather because there had been a loss of records, literally like records were lost when courthouses burned. But probably the biggest tra tragedy is that somewhere along the way, somebody just stopped telling the stories. So by the time it got to my dad's generation, they didn't know anything about the lockets. They didn't know where we came from. So a little presumptuously, I decided during that time in my life, I'm going to succeed where everyone in my family has failed. I'm going to get breakthrough on the family tree. So I started digging and researching and looking, and big shocker here, I hit all the same roadblocks that everyone had ever hit. And so I was finishing that year 
of my life more frustrated than I started because I didn't know anything that I had set out to discover. And it was during that time that I had a dream. Now, time out for a second. You know, we talk about dreams, and this is kind of a funny topic in some churches because, uh, you know, I'm not talking about like Dr. King saying, I have a dream, which is more like just a vision for the future or a, a big idea. And I'm not talking about when you eat pizza late at night and go to sleep and weird stuff comes into your head, all right? Not a pizza dream. I'm talking about when you go to sleep and your body's resting, but your spirit man is alert because the God of the universe is speaking your language and he's talking to you. So can I just see a show of hands? Do we have any dreamers in this place this morning? People, you feel like when you go to sleep, God's talking to you. Okay, now I'm going to give you a little warning right now. Like everywhere we go and we talk about this and we share our story, faith rises for this and windows for dreams start going open. So take this and receive this. I believe that God's about to open the whole dream dimension on Destiny Community Church and he's going to begin to give you the downloads of heaven. Amen? Receive that. So I had a dream during that time and in the dream, I don't have time to tell you the whole dream, but I'll sum it up. In the dream, the Lord began to show me how he was going to shift the culture of this nation, specifically how he was going to end abortion in America and how he was going to do that through day and night prayer. Now, this was a weird dream. Three things about this dream had my attention. Number one, I didn't really know anything about abortion. I'm sad to say that, but I was, maybe you can relate to this. I was I was uh, content for it not to be important to me, but to let other people worry about that stuff. I had no idea that this was important to God. Now, how, how many of you know that just because it's not important to you doesn't mean it's not important to God? I had to learn that. Number two, I didn't really know anything about prayer. Everybody thinks they do, but I didn't. Number three, there was a man in my dream named Lou Engel. Now, this is the man that Will talked about a little bit ago. It's his friend, Lou Engel. What was amazing to me is I didn't know there was a Lou Engel. But I dreamt about him, and I met him in my dream before I ever knew he existed. So this dream, this came from somewhere else. This did not come from pizza. And it got a hold of me. And I think it's so interesting that God can deposit a dream in us, and you will know that it's putting a demand on you. You have to respond. It's an invitation. It's a divine invitation. Treat your dreams gently. Don't dismiss them. You don't know what angels had to fight through to get that dream to you. Read Daniel 10. Wow. So I found out there was a real guy named Lou Engel. He's really doing something with prayer. And I decided to try to reach out to him. I got the phone number of somebody that worked with him. And I just cold called him. I said, hey, I don't know you and you don't know me, but I had a dream. He was like, really, what was your dream? <laughs> I didn't expect to be taken seriously. Thought it was kind of weird. So I told him the dream. And he said, this is very interesting. You've just dreamt exactly what God is sending us to do. We've got a group of young people and we're going to Washington, D.C. to pray for the ending of abortion and to raise up day and night prayer. Then he said this, maybe you should, we're going to do a gathering on the Steps of the Lincoln Memorial to pray. Maybe you should come to it. God might have something for you there. Now, I'm thinking, this is weird already. 
I lived in Colorado at the time. God, do you really want me to take time off work, spend hard-earned money to go to a prayer meeting on the other side of the country? Can't I do that at Wednesday night here where you spend 45 minutes talking, amen or oh me, and 15 minutes praying for somebody's grandma with a broken hip? And uh, maybe you'll pray for her to get healed or maybe you'll just pray that God would give her the strength to endure the affliction. It depends on the denomination. God, God is so good. He directs our steps and he confirms things to us. And do you guys do that where like you feel the invitation of God, but then you need him to confirm? You, come on, you guys play the confirmation game? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. The confirmation game, it's where like you, you feel like God's wanting you to do something, putting a demand on you, but then you create this in ridiculously complex set of circumstances, like some kind of weird calculus equation, advanced mathematics, and you say, God, if you can do this, then I'll know that it's you talking to me. And we're not supposed to test God, but God's like, ah, and then he does it anyway. And then you look at it. And then it's time for round two. And you do the Gideon thing. It's like, okay, but now if it's really you, then I need you to do it again. And that's the confirmation game. There's not enough people laughing about this. You feel very convicted, so it's not an amen. It's an oh me, isn't it? <laughs> so I did that, you know, and sure enough, God confirmed to me. He wanted me to go to this. And, and uh, I was uh, preparing to go on that trip a couple months in advance. And I got my hands on a recording of Lou Engle preaching. And I don't remember the message, honestly, but I remember this one statement that he made, and it, it, it hit me. It just cut me to the core, and I want to share it with you. He said, what moves you? What is your passion? Stay close to the burning bush in your life. What burns in you and never goes out, when you find something like that, draw close to it, and you'll hear your name called. Of course, he's talking about Moses, and here's Moses 40 years on the backside of the desert taking care of somebody else's sheep, right? Where every single day is just like all the other days. Can anybody relate to that where it just feels like you're stuck and it's like every day is just like every other day and nothing ever happens in your life? Listen, for Moses, it was like that. But suddenly, in a moment, one day was unlike all the other days. In one moment, God set a bush on fire and Moses had an opportunity. Now, I think this is what God's doing here at Destiny today, is that God is all about making moments and giving us the opportunity to respond. See, Moses could have said, cool, burning bush. I don't think a burning bush in the desert is all that unusual. What was interesting about this one is it didn't go out, so, which tells me he looked at it for a while. How long did that bush burn? An hour? day? Was he camped nearby and could see it burning all night? Did it burn? How long did that go? My question to you this morning is how long has the bush been burning in your own life? And you've just kept walking by. See, it says that when Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great wonder. When he leaned into his moment, then God calls out to him and says, Moses. That's when he heard his name called. God is all about making these moments. The problem is we rarely lean into them. But there's an opportunity even here this morning for you to lean into a moment that God is making right now. So I had one prayer that I was praying leading up to this, and I'm sure you can understand this. It's been a rough year. I lost my dad, very frustrated. So I'm praying, God, 
I need to hear my name called. That's an honest prayer. That doesn't get more honest than that. And so I prayed that over and over for a couple of months. And then I went to this prayer meeting. I actually have a photo of it. I'd like to show people this just so you don't think it's like this amazing thing. It's very simple. If you could put up that first image, it's a pretty small group. But here we are. You can see the Lincoln Memorial there in the background. That's where Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech. You saw that earlier. If you know who Lou Engel is, you'll recognize him on the right third of the screen. But if you look on the left side of the picture, that arm, the blue sleeve that's extended, if you follow it all the way out right to the end of the fingertips, you'll see that's Will Ford. The first place that Will and I ever came together was right there on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial where Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech. Now, I didn't really know why I was there. I'm glad I took the picture. But I didn't understand why we had to pray outside in January (laughs) for eight long hours. It was zero degrees that day. It's as cold as these people look. It was freezing. On that day, and I didn't really understand what was going on, but I'm so glad that I showed up. Sometimes you just got to show up. And so we prayed that day, and then that evening there was a guest speaker at a nearby church, and it was a man named Will Ford, and he brought out this kettle at Lou Engle's invitation, and he told the story that you've just heard this morning. And now think about this. It's one year to the day, exactly, since my dad died. I was frustrated, I was mess, a mess, I was a raw nerve, and I'm sitting and I'm listening to this story, along with my daughter, she was 10 at the time, I took her with me on this journey, and I'm listening to Will tell the story of this rich spiritual heritage, of his ancestors who prayed, they prayed for the nation, prayed for the next generation, and I was a mess because I knew nothing about my own family. And then Will shared this detail. He said that this kettle was handed down to Harriet Lockett, who gave it to Nora Lockett, to Will Ford Sr., to Will Ford Jr., Will Ford III, the man on the stage. And my daughter turned to me and said, Daddy, he just said our name. What was my prayer? What was the one prayer I was praying? God, I need to hear my name called. Listen, that is a really good prayer to pray because sometimes God will get really, really literal when he answers it. And I was in one of those holy moments, a Moses moment, hearing my name called. So I went up after the service uh, up to the altar and met Will for the first time, and we compared notes. He actually was just quizzing me, because once I told him my name, he was like, oh, wait a minute now. How do your lockets spell their name? And I said, with one T or two, and I said two. He said, well, our lockets only spelled it with one. Where are your lockets from? And I said, well, we don't really know. My dad was from Kentucky. And he said, well, our lockets were all the way down in Louisiana. And, you know, we just thought it was in the moment just an amazing coincidence. But it was enough that we felt a connection in the moment. We knelt down at the altar of that church. The first thing we ever did together was we knelt down and we prayed together. We prayed for revival in America. We repented for historic wrongs and prayed for the release of forgiveness on a new generation. Prayed for the ending of abortion. Prayed for revival. First thing this man and I ever did together was pray. And I got to be honest with you right now, we haven't stopped. After 17 years, we're still in that same prayer meeting. And so, man, God really got a hold of me through all of this. He called me out of the marketplace 
And I moved to Washington, D.C. and became a full-time missionary there 17 years ago. You're welcome. How many of you go to pray in Washington, D.C.? Oh, everybody should come. It's a party. All the demons come. You should come too. That is a true statement. So we have a house of prayer right there on Capitol Hill. It's called the Justice House of Prayer. And the, there's a dream that I want to share with you because it's important to the story. But this is a dream that God gave us at the beginning of our house of prayer that marked us. It actually gave us marching orders for one of the biggest prayer mandates we have. And in this dream... We were in a huge building that was filled with courtrooms, and we were being led from one courtroom to the next. And in the dream, the Lord spoke and said, either you deal with Roe v. Wade in your courts, or I will deal with it in mine. Now, that's pretty serious. We take this very seriously, because at the end of this long hall was a huge courtroom, and on the door it read, Appomattox Courthouse. Now, do we have any amateur historians at Destiny this morning. Does anybody know what Appomattox Courthouse is? That's because you slept in that class just like I did. So let me do a little timeout, give you an American History 101 tutorial. I always have to do this because very few people know this history. So 1861 to 1865, we fought a civil war. Now at the beginning, there were a lot of opinions about what that was about. By the end, everybody knew what it was about. It was about slavery. And New estimates put the death toll of that war at about 750,000 lives lost in that four, short four-year window. It's the bloodiest thing this nation has ever had to go through. And it was about the ending of slavery. So, in 1865, it was uh, April, and General Robert E. Lee was in Richmond, Virginia, and Petersburg, which is to the south, and the Union Army has put a siege on him there and, and cut him off. And they break through and Lee goes into retreat as the Union Army is chasing him across the state. Now he's running out of food and supplies, running out of ammunition, and it's desperate. He gets to the middle of the state to a place called Sailor's Creek. Now remember that, Sailor's Creek. And it's there that the Union Army overtook him. And on April 6th, 1865, Lee fought his last battle right there. And three days later on April 9th, which is the day most people are aware of, he signed unconditional surrender at a place called Appomattox Courthouse. Now, think about this for a second. Why would God take historic language like that and drop it into a dream and a mandate for this generation? That's why we've taken that dream so seriously is because we've understood that this is about the shedding of innocent blood and there's something that this generation needs to learn from what God has done in previous generations. We take this very seriously. You, we have the utmost sobriety about this. So now, fast forward. You know, we've been, we, out of that, we, 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 you know, we have this Prayer, you know, we, we pray versions of this, but it's basically, I think you'll understand it. God, we don't want to have to go back to Appomattox Courthouse again. And I, I shared this in first service. I think it's interesting that years ago when I would tell this dream, people would be like, Psh! and it just seems so far-fetched. But now, turn on the news. Language like of civil war is mainstream now. Everybody's talking about it. And I got to be really honest with you, Destiny Church, that terrifies me. 
Because for 17 years, we've been praying into this dream that God gave us that we wouldn't have to go back to that. So something is boiling. Now, fast forward. We were, Lou Engel was going to do one of his prayer gatherings in Virginia. And he called and he said, if we're going to do this, we have to go pray at Appomattox Courthouse first. See, we'd never been there. We knew about, knew about it. We knew the history, but had never you know, personally gone. So he came into town. We drove way out in the middle of Virginia. It's about three and a half hours from D.C. And we went in the McLean farmhouse. We stood in the room where Lee signed unconditional surrender. It's all been preserved. You know what we did? We prayed in that room for another unconditional surrender to come to America, only this time to God. What, what if we preemptively surrendered to God, Pastor? What if God intervened in this course of events that the nation is set on right now? Wow. So we went to leave. It's a historical place, and so there's a visitor center. And we went in there, and Lou Engel and I stepped up to this little bookcase, and we were standing side by side. And he grabs the first book off the shelf that caught his eye. It was this book right here. And he let it fall open to a random page. God really seems to like to do this kind of stuff where he makes books fall open to random pages. And I want you to see the page he turned to, if you could put it up on the screen. It's called The Last Shot, The Battle of Lockett's Farm. He let out a shudder and asked me, what is this? And I said, I have no idea. So I bought the book, began to study it. You can Google it for yourself. The last battle that Lee fought, the last battle of the American Civil War is called The Battle of Lockett's Farm. It happened in the front yard of a family named Lockett, spelled with two T's. Now, I want you to see it. It's been preserved. I actually found it. If you could put up the next image. This is the Lockett farmhouse right here. If I could get you up real close, you could see it's been preserved from the day of battle. It's riddled with bullet holes still. And the picture was this, is that Lee could get no further. His wagons actually got stuck in the mud. And he turned his cannons around in the front yard, and the Union Army emerged from the tree line in the backyard. And it was here. You see the memorial stone in the front yard. No exaggeration. It was here Lee fought his last battle. Now I'm thinking, this might mean something. Would you agree? Like as a believer, like I'm looking for meaning, and I know nothing about my family history, and I'm seeing I'm hearing my name called again. I'm in another Moses, like holy moment kind of a experience. And, and I am researching this. And it was about this time, by the providence of God, that my brother got the breakthrough in our family tree and succeeded where everyone has failed. And he called me and he said, you're not going to believe this. I got us all the way back to the year 1645. We came in as settlers just after the original Jamestown settlement. And we came in through Virginia. And I said, Virginia? Have I got a Virginia story for you? And I began to tell him about the Civil War. And he stopped me and he says, that's not that place by Sailor's Creek, is it? I said, that is exactly where it is. Why? He said, well, I just found the documents on it. That was our family. So is this landing here this morning? Are you, are you feeling this? This is, this is what you have to get is... After years of praying the Appomattox dream, I found out that the last battle of the last war, the last battle of the Civil War, happened in my family's front yard. Now, I met the man who lives here. 
because I had to go pray there. And uh, he invited me in and I was stunned when I walked in and framed and hanging on the living room wall was the Lockett family tree. And I had my brother's research, hand in a glove. This was my family. And he asked me, what do you know about your family? I said, well, not much. And he goes, did you know some of you guys left here and went to Kentucky? (laughs) That's the only part I knew. And then he said, you know, some of the Lockett's left here and went to the deep south. Some were involved in some very significant historical events. But then he said this. He goes, you know, some of you guys left here and went to Louisiana. And in some cases, those handwritten census ledgers had a clerical error where they accidentally dropped one of the T's and changed the spelling of your name. And I'm thinking what you're thinking right now. This cannot possibly be true. But, Will, why don't you share what we found out? Yeah, so Matt flies from D.C. to Dallas, and he lays out all his family research, and I bring mine. And honestly, we just, like, talked and prayed and cried. And we continued on with texting each other back and forth every morning, early in the morning, 5 in the morning, just looking at our research. So my oldest known family member was believed to be a man named Isaac Lockett. And in the 1870 census, he's 90 years old, living in Lake Providence, but in that document, he said he was originally from Virginia. Of course, slaves always took on the last names of people who owned them. My grandfather was born Lawrence Lockett, but his grandparents who raised him didn't want him to have a slave last name like them. So they changed his last name to Ford and gave him the first name of another family friend. So he became William Lawrence Ford. And that's how Ford actually came into our family. And so that led to like another year and a half of research. And so here's what we learned from the empirical evidence that we, we have, it was my friend Matt Lockett's family that owned my family where this kettle pot came from. So think about it. Here's my family in Lake Providence. Why Lake Providence? Maybe the lake of God's providence is way deeper and wider than we know. Maybe his right. plan is way bigger than we can actually realize. That's right. Maybe it's not a mistake the family we're born into, the places where we live. Pray for the end of slavery. And all the way up at the farmhouse where the people used to own them originally, slavery comes to the end in their front yard. But then because God is a God of the past and the future and he loves to heal history, Mr. Poema weaves two family members' lives together, Matt Lockett and I, from those same families, weaves our lives together so we can war against injustice in our yeah. day and cry yeah. for awakening in our time because that's the kind of God we serve. He loves Amen. to heal history. Amen. The story is so crazy. Give you an example how, how, how bizarre it is. Uh, uh, if you put up the next slide, these two people, uh, Napoleon Lockett and Mary Lockett, they were like the gone with the wind, like aristocrats within the Confederacy. And Napoleon was a colonel. He was an attorney. He owned lots of slaves. Between he and his 11 children, they owned uh, hundreds of slaves. Well, his wife, Mary, she didn't like the fact that the Confederate White House didn't have its own flag. So she hired a designer and hand sewed in her house the very first ever Confederate flag <laughs> and took it by horse and buggy to her friend, President Jefferson Davis. In other words, Matt's family is the Betsy Ross for the Confederacy, right? And so um, if you go to the next slide, you'll see that flag that she designed. It's called the Stars and Bars. Uh, that's the flag there at the uh, Confederate White House that's there in Montgomery. But they thought, you know, that flag looks too much like the Union flag on the battlefield, so let's, uh, let's come up with a Confederate battle flag. So then they came up with this flag, 
if you go to the next slide, but that's the one that's the most famous. But think about it. Because God heard the prayers of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists all around the country, and even in this family, we'll get to that in a second. Listen, through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up, next slide, the flag of surrender goes up in their front yard. Because that's the kind of God we serve. Isn't that powerful? So, but wait, there's more. <laughs> what you have to understand that this part of the story is that we didn't know, this isn't what connected us. Like when Will and I met at the beginning and prayed together, it wasn't the story that connected us. We didn't learn any of this until we had been praying together for almost a decade. For 10 years, we just learned to do life together. This is what, and I love it that that pastor, you shared that with new members of the church this morning. I think this is what it's all about, is just doing life together and learning how to love each other well. I love this man. I love his family. I fight for his dreams. He fights for my dreams. And I really do think that's how this is supposed to work. But now, think about this for a second. After 10 years of hearing this story and, and marveling at it, like being so provoked by that story, I found out, wait a minute, I'm actually connected to that story. And I'm actually connected to the worst parts of that story. I'm actually connected to that of the slave owner. Y'all, that was hard. That was really hard because maybe you can relate to what I'm about to say. For, for that to come forward, like the, what I was feeling in that moment, honestly, we all mean well, we all want the best. At least we say we want the best for everybody. But suddenly now I could no longer dismiss or ignore the historic pain of an entire community. Why? Because it had a face and it had a name and it was the face of a man that I love. So now I was being confronted with that pain and I had to go to a whole new level of how I knew God wanted me to respond to it. Amen? And for me, I mean, think about it. We've been, you know, we're guys in the prayer move. Don't you love it when God answers prayer or whatever? You see his hand and we're thinking, oh my God, this is a trip out of 300 plus million people in America. We will meet each other at the Lincoln Memorial on MLK Celebration Day, son of former slaves, son of, son of former, this is a trip. We thought, oh wow, God is real and he is. That lasted for about four months. Then all of a sudden it like hit me. I was like, hold up. Your people used to owe my people. What about that great uncle Willie of mine that was beat to death? Like for the first time, I realized I had a face connected to the pain of my family. And so all of a sudden I was trying to forget how my friend's family was ever my family's enemy. And it's the face of somebody that I love. I actually had some anger stuff rise up and then I remembered why God gave me that dream, I had to go to a deeper level of forgiveness, even generationally, even for my family. And you know what I did? I, I stood in the gap, and I, I forgave, and I got rid of more of my baggage. And Matt and I worked through this one-on-one, -on -one, but more, more is like me and God. But listen, that's what God is after right now. Yep. I love the way Matt says it. He says, you know, we got one group of people who say, you know what? The way we win in this thing is by withholding repentance because we don't want to say we're sorry because that's going to open a big can of worms. We have another group of people who say, no, nah, we're going we're gonna to withhold forgiveness because if we forgive them right now, we're going to let them off the hook. And God is saying, no, first one to love wins. And that's what he wants right now. Amen. I, I think, yeah, when we've talked about this in the past, we don't usually get to unpack it like this uh, for time's sake. But America's in a turf war right now where one side is defending their position and another side is defending theirs. And each thinks that they will win 
by just defending their position. And God is saying the first one in the middle, the first one to love is actually the one who wins. And I believe that's the opportunity of the church. You know, as painful and as hard as it was for us to discover this, you know, God, honestly, God wasn't in a big hurry to get us out of that moment. He left us there for a year and a half to work through those issues. I kind of feel like that's a, maybe a little microscopic picture of the nation right now that God's not in a big hurry to get us out of this moment because there's some stuff we got to get worked out. There's some stuff we need to deal with. And God, God's definition of justice is all about making wrong things right. I think that's what the opportunity of the moment we're in right now. But this is what's so awesome. Once the tapestry on my family turned around a little bit, when God turned it around a little bit more, it was extraordinary. Like God still had more of the story to reveal. And this is stuff we've only found out in the last couple of years, even though we've been telling it the story for longer than that. What I found out is that, yeah, we had slave owners in my family during the Civil War period, but you know what? There was a war even before that, the Revolutionary War. I'm talking about when George Washington is marching with the Continental Army. And I found a history book that I was reading about it. And lo and behold, revival broke out in the middle of Virginia during that war. And I'm, I'm really intrigued by this. So I'm reading about this revival. And I know that's where the lockets lived. And I turn the page and it reads, these were the men that were added to the Methodist circuit rider itineracy as a result of that revival. And it lists their names. And right there in the list is Daniel Lockett. He's a member of my family. We had no idea. I've got him on the family tree. We had no idea he was a Methodist circuit rider. Now, do we have anybody here that's been a part of the Methodist church at any point? I actually became a Christian in the Wesleyan church. I love the history of the Methodist church at this part of, at this point in history, because as the people were spreading out in the new world, there were no churches. And so the circuit riders would take the gospel to where the people were. And they did that by horseback. And so these, were, these dudes were hardcore. They would go through all the weather. You know, sometimes if it was a bad weather night, they would say, the only ones out tonight are frogs and circuit riders. That's like these, nothing stopped these guys. They would carry the gospel on horseback. And in their saddlebags, they carried Bibles and hymnals, but they also carried a thing called a manumission form. If you don't know what that is, a manumission form is a legal document that allows you to set your slaves free. Now, how'd you like to be in that altar call where you come forward to accept Christ and you are told, oh, by the way, it is for freedom that Christ sets you free. And you're given the opportunity to set your slaves free at the same time. We know that's exactly what happened because when you study it, everywhere those guys rode, the population of freed slaves literally exploded. That's the power of the gospel that you carry right now to not just change one human heart, but actually to reshape the world around us and impact culture. Amen? So yeah, he had slave owners in his family. They also had family members that were revivalists and abolitionists and taught slaves how to read and write. We'll get to that in a second. But it's like all of our families, right? We have these things called generational blessings and generational curses. They represent these dominating themes and storylines about our families. Mm -hmm. And that's what God is shouting right now to America is this one thing. What storyline are we going to be a part of? The healing or the hurt? The blessings or the curse? What storyline are we going to be a part of? God wants us to lock in on his storyline. See, yes, we had the slave owners, but God had already started another story in my family, and it was a story of abolition and revival. And I think part of how that played out is that 
You know, Will mentioned earlier that slaves, it was illegal for slaves to learn how to read and write. Well, guess what? Even after slavery ended, it still wasn't popular. So you had former slaves that would secretly try to learn to read and write, and they did it in secret because they feared that there would be consequences if they were caught. So they're on the Lockett Homestead in Virginia. 1867, two years after slavery ended, there's a former slave trying to teach her son how to read and write. And one night, in walks Lucy Lockett, one of my family, and she catches them red-handed. Only in that moment, I have to look at it this way, Lucy has to choose a different storyline. She can either repeat the curses of the past or she can tie in a a, a storyline of blessing, right? This is what Lucy did. She looks at the mother and she says, no, what you've chosen to do is very wise. She actually took up tutoring that young boy in how to read and write. And the reason we know the, the story like that is because he wrote about it in his autobiography. That little boy was Robert Russell Moton. He replaced Booker T. Washington as president of Tuskegee Institute. He went on to become an educational advisor to presidents. And if you could put up the last image, please. In 1922, he gave the dedication speech of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., where 41 years after that moment, Dr. King would stand on that spot and declare, I have a dream. And 41 years after that speech, Will and I would meet on the exact same spot. Isn't that crazy? bizarre? <laughs> so think about it. Here's, here's a story where two men are led by dreams to meet each other at the place where Dr. King gives the I Have a Dream speech. We meet each other on MLK Celebration Day at the spot where he says, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves, the sons of former slave owners, will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. So maybe the dream speech wasn't poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's a dream king called the king of kings, and his father's still going to answer his son's prayer. Father, I pray that they be one so that your glory could come so that the world would believe. Maybe God hadn't forgotten about the prayers of a Prathia Hall or Martin Luther King or your mamma and papa. God hadn't forgotten about any of those prayers. So Jesus, we overheard you praying for us. And it's branded us. Smart. Oh, faithful intercessor. Give us the grace to respond to your voice in this hour. With all that is the enemy is trying to do to divide our families, our communities, and our nation. God, we're so thankful that you're weaving us into the storyline of the ages. You hadn't forgotten about anything that you promised those who gone before us and our families. So thankful, God. You know, I talked about my uncle who unwillingly gave his back to be beaten. But listen, y'all, Jesus Christ willingly gave his back to be beaten for us all. And by his stripes, guess what? He's healing history. And by his blood, he is uniting you to be part of his family. And he wants to heal your family line. 
Maybe, you know, you've been in a family that's full of just alcoholic, addict, and sexual addiction, and abuse, and divorce after divorce, all those generational curses, hatred, bigotry, all that. But listen, right now, I just want to tell you, it's not a mistake that you hear. It's not a mistake that you're watching online. God, the God of providence orchestrated all these events today. And guess what? <laughs> he can use you to change the storyline of your family, the storyline of a community, and even change the storyline of a nation. But it takes that first step. Your pain can have a purpose when you get connected to Christ. Just every head bowed, every eye closed real quick. If you hear, you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Let me tell you something. Somebody was praying for you to get in here today. Because this is a praying church. You know, 200 years ago, probably were family members and founding fathers that were praying for you. You didn't even know it. But I'm telling you, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ had you on his mind. And the great intercessor still lives right now to make intercession for you. Somebody invited you here today. You had no idea why you came. But listen, this is why you came. It's time for you to be brought into the family. You hear you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. You want to know forgiveness for your sins. Raise your hand. We want to pray for you. Thank you, Lord. You're here right now. You've recognized in your own family some of those generational curses that I talked about. Addiction after addiction, abuse, just those patterns, patterns of bigotry and hatred or whatever in your family. And you want to say, God, I want to be the one that breaks the power of those things right now today. And I want to change the storyline of my family. Raise your hand if you want me to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So right now, just where you are, can you just repeat this after me? Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for weaving me into your family. Thank you for giving me your unfinished business. And right now, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I receive your forgiveness. And I receive your death on the cross as payment for all of my sins. And right now, I forgive the sins of my forefathers. And I place the cross of Christ between myself and those generational curses. And I call forth generational blessings, spiritual inheritances. And I call forth the redemptive reason for which you birthed me into the family that I was placed in. And I thank you for what you're doing this day in my heart and and in my life. In Jesus' name. Come on now, let's give the Lord a clap and a shout. Come on, stand to your feet. Lord, we give you praise. God, we thank you for what you're doing in all our hearts. Thank you for changing storylines. Thank you for healing our history. Thank you, Lord. By connecting us to your unfinished bed. Answer your son's prayer. I want to share this last thing. You know what? The beautiful thing about man's family, their house is still between these two armies. 
And that house was riddled with bullet holes. Took shots from both sides. That house stood in the gap. But you know what happened? It got turned into a hospital. Tell them about that. Yeah, it says that uh, the historical account says that, as you can see, the only thing that stood between the two armies was the Lockett House. And it says that at the end of the day, it became a hospital for both sides, and the floorboards were stained with the blood of both sides. That house stood in the gap. It, become, it became a picture, I think, for the church that needs to be willing to stand in the gap. We're not going to, like the days of avoiding this are over. The church needs to be a place of healing that's willing to take shots from both sides for the sake of saving some. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, it says that former slaves worked with white nurses and they healed the wounds of brothers who've been fighting against each other for way too long. Destiny Community Church, you're that house. Amen. Would you stand in the gap and release the kingdom? Yeah, you may take shots from both sides, but if you can stay there long enough, Pastor Rocky, you're going to heal a community. You're going to heal a nation. Come on. Come on. Come on. So, Father, I pray that grace over this house to be the house, the house of prayer that stands in the gap. Ezekiel 22, 30, Lord, you sought for somebody to stand in the gap. I thank you that you found this house, and it's going to do that in Jesus' name. All God's people say amen. Come on. Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.